Trust 20 is the new standard of restaurant safety and diner comfort. Trust 20 restaurants are part of a national network of restaurants that meet a high standard of cleanliness and safety, giving diners confidence in the measures you're taking to keep them safe. Trust 20 restaurants receive expert guidance, operational resources, and benefit from diner-focused promotion on behalf of the Trust 20 network of participants. So how do you get certified? It's easy. Go to trust20.co and request a certification appointment. A Trust 20 specialist will reach out and arrange a visit. The specialist conducts a 60-minute review and consultation according to Trust 20 tactics. If adjustments are needed, the Trust 20 specialist will provide guidance to assist. Now that you're certified, have peace of mind knowing that you're doing everything you can to keep your restaurant safe and start enjoying the benefits of Trust 20 certification. Remember, visit trust20.co and request your certification appointment today. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host, and we have got a fantastic story for you today. Our guest today is Charlie Nelson, who is the founder, re-founder, if you have it, of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. They produce the Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee Whiskey as well as Bellmead Bourbon. And his story is one for the ages, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I just, uh, I was telling somebody just yesterday about his story and they were like, What? And I said, you got to listen. You got to listen to the show on Wednesday because you're going to love it. Really just like such an amazing guy. Uh, just enjoyed talking with him. We talked for a long time, but man, um, so much fun. So anyway, I'm excited to bring this to you guys. But first, I will uh, continue to tell you about Trust 20. They are doing amazing things out there. If it, It's so hard to know exactly what to do in your restaurant. Are we doing the right thing? Is there some way to measure whether or not we're doing the right thing? And yes, yes, the answer is yes, there is. Uh, trust 20, trust the number 20.co is the website you need to go to to um, to make sure you're doing all the right stuff. You're keeping your customers as well as your staff safe. That's the name of the game right now, right? Safety, you gotta be safe. Also, I would love it if you guys out there would use the hashtag Nashville hot list. We are putting together our hot list for November. And I would love to know where you've been going, where the newest, hottest places are. Are you getting to go food from the Continental? I'm so excited because Hathorne is opening tonight. Brand new, back in. They're not just doing to goes anymore. John Stevenson, friend of the show, love the guy. He is such an amazing dude. Please go out and support Hathorne. Uh, they're over there off Charlotte Pike next to the Clementine. So excited to have him back open. Uh, lots of cool stuff going on out there, y'all. Uh, let me know about it. Use the hashtag Nashville Hot List, and hopefully your favorite restaurant can make it on the list for the month of November. 
Remember, we had the number one restaurant in our city last month was Yolan in the Joseph Hotel. Number two was Bastion. And number three, Lachlan Table, who was the best restaurant choice for the uh, readers, the Nashville scene, and the best of Nashville issue. Um, it just happened. So we are really excited to bring this episode to you today. We have an all-new episode tomorrow of The Roundup. It's going to be live with Delia, Joe Ramsey, and myself Thursday afternoon on Facebook and YouTube. We've got a, we've got a pretty good show. We're going to be highlighting the 12th South neighborhood and uh, some other local restaurants, as well as a new segment on brand with Brandon. <laughs> we'll see what that's like. It's kind of my version of what's the Delia. Um, we also have t-shirts and hats now for sale. Um, every little bit helps support us. We thank you all very much. Go to our website, www.nashvillerestaurantradio.com. And I have talked way too long. Let's jump right in with Mr. Charlie Nelson. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Uh, let's go. All right, with much excitement, I want to welcome in Charlie Nelson, who is the founder and re-founder of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. We are so excited just to kind of have you. I want to learn all about your story, all about what you do on a daily basis. Let's. I, I just want to jump right in with your story because I feel like I've heard your story a few times and I think it's well documented. A lot of people know your story, but will you give us just like the, you know, can you do like a five minute version of kind of how Nelson's Greenbrier came to be because it's such a fantastic story. But I, for those of you who haven't heard it coming from you, will you just well, let's just do that and then we'll go from there. Is that cool? Yeah, for, yeah, totally. Um, and you know, if you if you want to go deeper into details, I, I could I could do the the five hour story or the five I, yeah. minute or the five second. So, um, yeah, it, it starts with my great 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 grandfather Charles Nelson, who came over from Germany with literally nothing but the clothes on his back in 1850. Um, his his, fa his father actually um, drowned on the journey over. Um, and uh, was taken to the bottom of the Atlantic with the family's fortune in gold sewn into his clothing. And um, he, uh, Charles and the rest of the family make it to New York. Uh, Charles makes soap and candles for two years, moves to Cincinnati, becomes a butcher. And then around 1858, moves to Nashville and starts a wholesale grocery business where he had three great selling products, his coffee, meat, and whiskey. Um, his coffee being delivered by a guy named Joel Cheek, who went on to take that blend a few blocks away to the Maxwell House Hotel, became a pretty popular brand of coffee. And um, yes. <laughs> the, the story is that his butcher's name was Mr. Hill, who went on to start his own grocery business. Uh, but uh, Charles, uh, he was just bottling and selling whiskey at the time. Uh, he was one of the first to bottle uh, and sell whiskey rather than uh, selling it by the barrel or the jug. And so realize the demand far exceeds his supply, buys the distillery that's producing it, a patent for improved distillation, greatly expands and becomes one of the largest distilleries in the country, by far the largest in Tennessee. And um, it was known as old number five because it was registered distillery number five, uh, which the federal government recognized and gave us an historic designation of DSP, Distilled Spirits Plant, TN, Tennessee 5. So 
Uh, we're really proud of that. He produced the original Tennessee whiskey, Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, um, which uh, is what will become our signature product. Um, he also produced Bell Mead, one of 30 labels he produced. Uh, but like by 1885 was selling about 2 million bottles a year, which is kind of crazy. That's a lot more than we're selling today. So that's um, a lot of whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there weren't that many people in the country then either, you know. Um, but um, anyway, uh, Charles died in 1891. His wife, Louisa, took over as one of the only women to run a distillery back in the day, which is something that we're incredibly proud of. Um, and she ran the distillery until 1909 when statewide prohibition hit Tennessee, forcing us to close our doors. And, uh, and then growing up, I didn't know about the distillery. And I just uh, discovered it uh, 14 years ago when my dad went in with three of his buddies to buy a cow worth of meat from a butcher. And, you know, we're on our way to, we go, Andy and I, my brother and I, we go with our dad to pick up our quarter of a cow on our way there, running low on fuel, stop to fill up. And at the gas station, there's this historical marker that says Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, one mile east on Long Branch Road. Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. We're like, holy crap that's crazy i'm gonna stop you for one second did you know previous to stopping there that your your family there's a lineage in your family and you guys used to have this distillery and then you get there and you're kind of you kind of know going into the greenbrier area that that's there or were you completely because that's the part i didn't know like are you do you learn about your history from them yeah so um i i didn't know anything about it um, my brother Andy says that he remembers maybe hearing something about it. My dad said that um, he remembered hearing a little bit about it when when he was younger and like being at family gatherings and, you know, his dad and his uncles and stuff being like, if we could just find the old spring, we could bring back the family business. But I, I, I did not. Um, I. Actually, I went to college in California, and I still had a semester of college left when we discovered it. And I, to be honest, I, I just, I wasn't super close with my family, and I, I wanted to get away. <laughs> I wanted to get it like go as far away from home as possible, um, and and just like travel the world and stuff. Like I, I just I didn't want to be in one place. So I, I wasn't even that interested in my family history until this point. So this wow. was kind of, this was kind of just a, a complete turning point in my life. So, okay. So I, I, that there's a lot there, but <laughs> you, so, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. You're right in the middle of the story. You're at the gas station and you see the sign that says Nelson's green bar. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, so it's one mile east, Long Branch Road, Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier. So like, and, and I'm at that Charles point, Nelson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at that point, it was like, it was like, I didn't really even know if, like, it was like, okay, that that's kind of a common name. Like, it didn't really click yet. And so we go onto the butcher. He happens to live a mile east, Chuck Grissom. Um, he was he was amazing. Um, and, big big man um his his calves were like the size of my torso uh, um but uh anyway so he shows us a, we asked him if he knew anything about the distillery and 
he shows us across the street where there's like this old barrel warehouse that's still standing the original spring still running we drank from the spring and then he sends us to a nearby historical society where there were two original bottles with my name on and just like every hair on my body stood up and my brother and i look at each other just like oh my gosh this this is what we're here to do and um you know it was just kind of like a moment of clarity and like being struck by lightning and um but did you know at that time you said all the hair stood up did you know that that was your great 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 grandfather because you're only like an hour removed from realizing that there's a a distillery trial like hey that name sounds familiar and then you see it to like put all that together or are you like on your phone googling like who's charles nelson greenbrier distillery holy shit this is my great great grandfather kind of i mean i'm trying to think if i even had an iphone at the time i don't i don't know if i did i guess was or if you even had reception out there yeah right um but you know at the at that historical society they had a bunch of newspapers and you know we were just like reading through everything and uh, this lady, Sheila Watts, who uh, was the head of the historical society, we start talking and she was like, she mentioned that a, a couple of other Nelsons had come to see her and, and seen like over the years. And so like, and we started talking with my dad about it and everything. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't that close with my dad at that point either, you know, so um Anyway, it, we we realized that yeah, it, it like we did the you know we went back and sort of did the math and it was like okay yeah that was our great 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 grandfather. That is such an amazing story. Like, did you do you even like drink bourbon? Was that like a thing to you? I mean, how old are you at this time? You said you have one more semester left in college. Were you twenty two, twenty three? I was I was twenty one or twenty two. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, I didn't drink any before I turned 21. Uh, of course, but you've but, studied it. <laughs> I you studied ex- it. Did yeah, you experiment? Yeah. Uh, a, a little. I mean, I, I just <laughs> I, I enjoyed reading the labels. Yeah, um, you too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't alone. Um, I, I thought I was weird for doing that. I. Yeah. So I mean, when I when I um, was in college uh, in LA, you know. I like, I, I, I kind of, I enjoyed drinking whiskey, like first starting out, you know, I, I would drink just like, you know, not good. And then I, then I was like, well, I'm from Tennessee, I should drink Tennessee whiskey. And so, but I was like, but I don't want to drink Jack because that's too obvious. So um, I started drinking George Dickel and I really liked that. And I, um, you know, visited the the Dickel Distillery. That was one of the first that we visited uh, after we discovered it. And and then uh, a friend of mine, he was drinking Knob Creek, and I, and then I started drinking Maker's Mark, and and then kind of just like went up from there. That was before discovering the distillery. And then I I bartended. Uh, I studied abroad in Paris. Uh, Paris, oh, France, wow. not not Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and while I was studying abroad in France, um, I was a bartender there. Um, and so, um, you know, people when we would talk about Tennessee, uh, there were Jack there Daniels. were like there were three things. Yeah, there was Jack Daniels, 
Elvis, and then uh, Johnny Hallyday, a uh, famous French singer who had a song that was like, Quelque chose de Tennessee. Uh, and so like everybody knows Johnny Hallyday that, you know, he's got like this, I, I probably totally sang that wrong, but um, Quelque chose de Tennessee. And so uh, his song was all about like, there's a music video and there's like scenes of, of, uh, of I think Tennessee, like I remember seeing the video, but anyway, it was called something about Tennessee uh, was his song. So like a lot of French uh, folks just kind of like, I, I think there's a little bit of a sort of romantic notion of, of Tennessee. So what was that car like? What was the car ride home, right? So you get that you're probably trunks probably full of meat, right? You've got half a cow back there. But quarter quarter you, of a cow. Quarter of a cow. But you figure <laughs> out during this trip, you're with your brother Andy, right? Who's your older brother by the way, like 16 months, something like that? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Wow. Uh was, your older was, brother yeah. Andy's in the car with you and your dad, who you said you're not super close with the, I won't get into all of that, but you're in the car driving back to your house. You got this half quarter cow in the car. What is that conversation like? Um, so, I mean, we we started talking about how we were like, I mean, there's only two other distilleries that we know of in Tennessee, Jack Daniels and George Dickel, and we we're like, we're like, how many distilleries are there even in the, in the country? And like we we couldn't even think of like more than a few more, and we're like, this is wide open. And what like, year is this? Two thousand six. So okay. uh, yeah, so I mean, at that time there were maybe a dozen distilleries in the country making whiskey. Um, after doing a little bit of research, at least that we knew of, um, and you know, I, I remember. <laughs> My brother said something um, uh, funny. He was like, golly, if, 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 could you imagine if it had never shut down? Because like, you know, we, we see, you know, that we were selling 380,000 gallons a year in 1885, 1885. That's crazy. And like, that was like 20 times the size of any other distillery in Tennessee, especially any notable brands that you might know of. Oh yeah. Um, and, and it was like, could you imagine if we had never shut down? And he was like, he's like, gosh, I'd probably be just like a terrible person and like have my own private Island and like have a vanity <laughs> plate that said something stupid like whiskey King or something. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's not the case because we'd probably be just like rotten. Um, not that there, you know, we it was just joking, but um, uh, not that there's anything wrong with you know generational wealth or anything. But um, anyway, so um, you're not alien. You're not alienating anybody who's listening to this show. By the way, you're fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody so, else is like, yeah, you know, we, we're we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean. We, we were just kind of joking about that and and we like we're like okay i mean this is this is like this is it this is this is what we're gonna do but how how do we get started and so we started just like you know my dad was talking about like just like people that he knew that maybe we could go to and you know talk to family members and and then 
um, you know, we we knew some folks um, at like at Brown Foreman and at Jack Daniels and like um, so we we started setting up meetings uh, with folks at pretty much all the distilleries in Tennessee and Kentucky that we could how get long, in touch how with. long after that car ride home where you guys are like wow well, let's figure this thing out you probably have some more conversations um, after that you still have a semester did you go back to school did you finish that last semester yeah so um i actually it's kind of crazy um so i mentioned that i studied abroad in france and i and then i like traveled around a lot of europe and and i took time off and i traveled around southeast asia and i fell in love with traveling and so um as traveling is amazing yeah yeah and um <laughs> And like I had been having these arguments with my dad about like I didn't care to finish school because I was like, man, like real world practical knowledge is way better than theoretical knowledge. Like who needs school when you can just like actually see the real world? And I, I, I kind of agree with that to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, and and ultimately he convinced me that the combination of theoretical and practical knowledge, or you know, is is more powerful than either or, and so I consented. And and uh, but anyway, I um uh, I wrote a paper uh, to try and get a grant um, to uh, go back to Europe, and it was like the Eugene Escalier uh, grant that the school, uh, Loyola Marymount University, where I went, they, they gave it out. And um, I wrote a paper and, and I won the grant. Um, and it was to study Paleolithic cave paintings in Spain, Italy, and France. And so uh, for two months, but the, the grant was for, I think $2,000 and the plane ticket alone was like $1,000. So that's why I was in Nashville trying to make a little bit of money before my trip. Uh, so, you know, shortly after discovering it, um, I go to France, uh, Spain and Italy, and I tour around all these like caves and, and study cave paintings. And I actually, uh, in Italy, um, uh, in an area, uh, like I guess, north of Milan, uh, near Brescia, uh, in a place called Capo di Ponte, um, I, I actually ended up kind of stumbling upon uh, this guy, Emmanuel Anati, who was like the world's foremost scholar on like, you know, Paleolithic cave paintings. And um, we, uh, we, I'm kind of going off topic here. You're uh, good. But, you, this is fantastic. <laughs> but um, anyway, like he was Italian and he didn't speak English, but he spoke French and I didn't speak Italian, but I spoke French. So we kind of bonded talking about, and I studied like philosophy and at the Sorbonne in Paris. And so we, we talked about like French philosophy and poetry. And he asked if I wanted to study under him. Uh, but I told him that I was like, man, I would love to, but I'm thinking about like starting this whiskey business. And so we ended up like having a little bit of Jack Daniels and, and, you know, parting ways and everything. Um, I finished up my trip um, and then I went back to school, finished up my last semester. Um, I, I took a business class um, and it, 
that uh, was like everybody had to write a business plan. And so I um, like, and everybody thought I was crazy. Um, like all, all the people in my class, like it, there were a bunch of, you know, girls from Southern California who were writing business plans to start like little, you know, boutiques, uh, clothing shops and stuff. And here I am like saying, I want to start this whiskey business. And uh, everybody was just like laughing at me. And um, who's laughing now? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but it, it, my teacher was great. Uh, Dr. Kaz, uh, he was great. And I think he actually passed a few years ago, but he was he was awesome. And he was very encouraging. And he was like, man, you're going to do this. And um, you wrote your business plan in college. Yep. Um, and and learned, of course, everything that I needed to know about uh, business uh, during uh, that uh, one semester. <laughs> of course. So I'm going to take you back to uh, Spain and Italy real quick. Mm -hmm. Because I haven't had this opportunity on Nashville Restaurant Radio yet, I want to touch on Paleolithic cave paintings for just a moment. Because we're an educational channel and we like to talk about all things, give us the one thing we need to know right now about Paleolithic cave paintings. If you're just a novice out there like me, because I'm a novice on those things, What's something I need to know about them? And then we'll move on. Um, well, so I would argue that it's like the 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 cradle of, of uh, human culture, that it, it's like it's the beginning point of, you know, it's the first way in which humans really started expressing themselves and communicating, you know, and passing down stories and myths about, you know, uh, you know, how they would hunt and, and best practices for hunting and how they would teach uh, their children. And um, it, it was like sort of part of the beginning of, of human cultural development. Um, and uh, there were these amazing caves like the cave. I, I didn't actually get to visit the caves at Lascaux because um, too many people had been visiting them and they didn't want the paintings to be um, uh, disrupted. But uh, some, the caves of Lasco are in France and I visited the caves in, uh, in Spain at Altamira um, and also in the south of France, Les Aisies de Tayac, uh, which was really cool. Uh, I mean, they're, it, it's, it's basically like, uh, you know, <laughs> artwork, but also like, you know how like old is books it? From, how, how old are those paintings just for some like thirteen thousand to twenty thousand years old something like that what do they use to paint on the walls um like so blood did, or berries yeah yeah blood berries really anything and like uh you know there were a lot of, there you could see like um if you look up you know um some of the like the cave paintings or whatever they're one of the more common things that you'll see is like just like the hands first like where you know they would maybe have like a hollowed out stick or something and like you know spray through and like get the uh outline of their hands oh, wow. um but then they started you know drawing with uh, and like with rocks and 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 um you know whatever they could use but um um yeah and, and some that's good it, it, 
yeah in italy they did a lot more <laughs> like um uh like hammering chiseling in okay anyway. well i just i you know you mentioned the going around and having experiences in life and goodwill hunting is one of like my favorite movies there's mm. that scene where robin williams sits there with me he goes i figured you out you can spout off voltaire you can tell anything in a book he goes, but you can't tell me what it smells like in the sistine chapel and you've never mm. left the city you haven't experienced life and i'm just thinking like I've had a few of those experiences where I've been somewhere in the Hall of Mirrors, you know, in Versailles, and you're like, I just was like, oh, it kind of smells kind of dingy in here. And it has this thing like I can imagine that lifetime experience of being in those caves and looking at those things and actually being there or, you know, it's just a it's a cool experience. I love that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So you wrote the paper, you get out of college, you get with your brother. Do you guys do like this? Hey, what are you good at? What are you good at? What do you want to do? What do I want to do? Um, kind of a kind thing. Of, I mean, it, it was it was kind of out? yeah, it, it was kind of um, natural. Like we kind of knew, I guess. Like um, so, once once I graduate and move back to Nashville, and we work on uh, refining the business plan and and trying to raise money. And at the time, I first started bartending, or actually bussing tables, and then bartending at a place in Hillsborough Village called the Trace. Um, oh yeah it's, it's, it's uh, yeah 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 <laughs> ken yeah 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 um ken he was the owner, right he was yeah yeah yeah, yeah right, he, right next uh, to cabana yeah exactly um and yeah i, I bartended a lot of brunches yeah. um and uh yeah one um unforgettable experience was <laughs> where we ran out of champagne flutes for mimosas and I started pouring, you know, mimosas into wine glasses and Ken started yelling at me because he was like, you're pouring too, you're giving too much champagne. I was like, man, it's the same exact amount, just in a different size glass. Like, <laughs> and anyway, um, he's an eccentric dude. Yeah. Um, is he still just... in Nashville? Does he have a restaurant or anything? I, I not to my knowledge. I mean, not to my knowledge. I know that uh, you know, I used to work with them. I used to sell to trace all their produce back in the day. Michael Chapleski was the chef there for a while, and uh, and uh, okay. Kelly, um, yes, Weatherford Kelly also, Kelly, yeah, he's over. He's doing the um, bar thing now. He's run all these bars. Kelly Weatherford, yeah, 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 and there there's a handful of you know bartenders still around, like. Uh, Christina Placentia, who uh, last I saw her, she was at uh, uh, Fifth and Taylor, I think, and like this guy Mac, I can't remember. He was at the Palm, and so there's still a handful of them still. But that that around. that corner right there, the Trace Cabana and Sunset Grill, that was like the most happening cool like Hillsborough Village back in the day to go to Jackson's yeah. or go to the Villager and play dark. Yeah. Hang out. There was there was Jonathan's before it was Sam's and Bosco's, and you could just hang out in the village, and it was totally like the local. That's where you hung out. That was the place, in my opinion. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I loved it too, and I, and I lived right near there too. So sorry, we get off on uh, a tangent. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so you were um, bartending at the yeah. trade while you guys yeah. were figuring all this out. Yeah, and um, I I had actually um, I had gotten in a uh, 
like a scooter accident in France um, in 2004 and my shoulder was still like destroyed. And I, I finally was like, okay, now that I'm not traveling anymore, now that I'm in Nashville um, and I've got my parents around, they can help me pay for, for shoulder surgery. So I had shoulder surgery and then I couldn't bartend anymore. So uh, we, my brother, my dad and I, we continued refining our business plan and trying to raise money. Um, and we were, you know, like nights and weekends, um, trying to, uh, still learn as much as we could about the distillery and the, or the distilling business and the, and just whiskey and, and going around to distilleries. spent a lot of time in state and county archives and, um, you know, my brother was uh, working as a video editor um, and and he was learning. He was kind of focusing more on the production side of things and the operations side of things where I was uh, focusing a little bit more on the sales and marketing side of things, just because like our personalities, I'm a little bit more outgoing and and. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and he's, and a little bit more of like a big picture general thinker. And whereas he's a lot more of like attention to detail perfectionist and that sort of thing. And, um, so, and also for some reason, like there was some law, which I don't think is the case anymore, where like you can only have one person, uh, who is, uh, to be officially raising money within a 12 month period. And so um, I was the one uh, started out um, actually calling on people to raise money. I don't fully understand that, but uh, for some reason, I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, there's probably um, a ton of laws you had to uh, figure out going into this business, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, a ton and and ever changing laws and, and like, um, I remember there was also, you know, we could only raise money from accredited investors. And then there was actually a law that was passed um, that uh, sort of uh, negated that. And um, like after we had raised some money, but um, <laughs> and so this, this was like leading up to and then during the recession, too. So it was brutal. Um, wow. And. Um, I was I was working a day job um, helping uh, uh, teach Arabic language and culture to soldiers before going to Iraq through a software program, um, which was kind of crazy. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. that's like a thirty minute conversation right there. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. The it was it was crazy. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Kuwait and Dubai and. Um, it was really fun. I, I actually ended up becoming like a voice actor for uh, a soldier uh, playing. I was Arif Lopez, uh, Sergeant Lopez. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I on what uh, uh, on the it was called Talon Tactical Arabic Language Online Network. Um, and so we it's a long story. Um, but ultimately, like, you know, during the Iraq war, you know, there were a lot of different companies that were trying to get government contracts for whatever reason. Um, and uh, 
at Little Planet Learning uh, had done a long time ago a, a Chinese uh, language program that was teaching Chinese uh, students how to uh, speak English. And then it was supposed to be SWAP where teaching uh, American students how to speak Chinese. Uh, never would have guessed it, but apparently the Americans weren't interested in learning Chinese. Um, <laughs> and But anyway, it was a successful program. And so the government then came to Little Planet based here in Nashville to to work on, on talent, got a tiny contract um, like that was a fraction of what other companies had. And then, but uh, we were able to actually uh, effectively teach people. Like I learned just working on the program, I learned how to speak, um, read, write, and, and speak Arabic, not necessarily understand it all the time, but I didn't even have any formal training. Um, and, how many languages um, do you speak? I mean, I, I used to be like totally fluent in French, but I haven't really spoken it since like 2004, 2005. So, uh, and then I French, little Farsi, Arabic. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and I could say pleasantries in probably 15 or so languages, you know, a little bit of Thai, a little bit of Lao, a little Vietnamese. And and like I could, you know, we have a lot of Ethiopian uh, Uber drivers and stuff and so i can say you know like thank like almost say ganada you know thank you and nice um i just a lot of like a few words of a lot of different languages i guess how many countries have you been to how many countries have you traveled to do you have like a um yeah probably i i'm somewhere in a box i've got like little flags of most all of the countries that i've been to but I don't know, probably 30 or so, 35, okay. 40, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm That's not cute. totally sure, to be honest. Are you married? Uh, no, I'm engaged. Uh, Congratulations. I, yeah, thank you. Thank you. We've, we've pushed back our um, our wedding to next, next October. Uh, actually, we're planning to get married in Mexico. So Nice. What part? Yeah. Uh, Tulum. Oh, I did my honeymoon in Tulum. Oh, nice. Yeah. How was it? Like, oh, it's fantastic. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the Yucatan, in my opinion. It just, it's, it's not crowded like Cancun. The beaches are gorgeous in Cancun, but Tulum is just, it's a lot more chill. It's a lot more chill. It's a little farther south. Kind of just the water's gorgeous. Everybody, everything's more laid back. It's really nice. Cool. You'll have a blast, I'm sure. Yeah, so, I'm okay, sorry, I get off track here because there's so much stuff going on. Um, let's fast forward a little bit because we're in that that 35 minute mark, and I know that I don't want to keep okay. you too long. It's gorgeous outside, and I want you to get yeah. out and enjoy some of this day. So, let's fast forward. This has been an amazing story so far. I'm like beyond just bewildered that you're going to pick up a cow and all of a sudden you've realized your dream. I don't know how many people in their world get to stop somewhere randomly and go, oh my gosh, I have this amazing lineage and we're going to do it. And then actually went back, had the wherewithal, the energy, the whatever it was to put it together, make it happen. Do you, what's the first thing that you do? Do you find a, a space to create a distillery? Because if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong, the bourbon distilling process is you've got to identify your recipe. You've got to get 
your grains together. And if you're actually producing it yourself, you have to distill the product and then you got to put it in a barrel and it's got to sit there for years and years. So the, the waiting game, the, the, the expense of creating this bourbon, your own Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey or whatever, what you're doing takes a long time. You got a bunch of capital. Then you got to put it in barrels and just sit there and wait. And it's like, what the hell? Like, how do you make money during that time? Did you guys make a vodka? Like, is popular? The Pennington said they're never making vodka. And now they're they're doing pickers. Is that where Belmead was arrived? Like, let's let's fast forward to that point. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and you're you're exactly right. Like, how that and that's why it was so difficult to raise money because you know before this big whiskey boom, I was going around saying, hey you know, invest all of this money and, you know, just trust me in a few years, years, we'll start resurrect or we'll start generating revenue. Uh, but we're not going to generate any revenue for at least a few years. So we're investors spend were lots not, of money. Yeah. We're going to spend lots of it, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, it's so, like a savings bond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and, you know, fresh out of college, barely of drinking age with no business experience. So anyway, in doing a lot of research, we found that Bell Mead was one of 30 labels that Charles Nelson produced and that uh, he produced it in conjunction with another company that um, he actually aged and bottled Bell Mead while another company distilled it. So like, okay, that works perfectly in line with our history. And so uh, we found an expert, Dave Pickerel, who had um, been the former master distiller at Maker's Mark, and and yeah. he had actually been consulting with Willett, uh, who was his first consulting job. Yep, uh, after Maker's, and then and then we met him, and and we signed him up, um, and we then put up literally everything that we owned, uh, mostly my parents' house, to personally guarantee a loan. Uh, to get started sourcing barrels, working with a contracted distillery to produce Bellmead bourbon, which was meant just, to be. Did you just say ahead. your parents put up their house for this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Um, and we actually just uh, last year, um, May 1st of last year was the uh, first time we were able to get, uh, take our personal guarantees off of, uh, the loan, um, which was a huge, um, load off of all of our backs. Um, and because that was causing an enormous amount of pressure and challenges, uh, from, you know, what, Oh, six, Oh, seven, Oh, eight, something like that until 2019, um, personally guaranteeing literally all of the, uh, death. That's a, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I think um, it's just a fascinating thing to me that you're, you know, you had mentioned earlier, your relationship wasn't that strong with your family. And now you identify this a few years later, they're putting it, they're all in and you're all in kind of together with this thing. And I wonder, you know, has that been an amazing thing for your family? Has it brought you guys all back together? Uh, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's, it's been, uh, it has definitely brought, um, our family a lot closer and, um, 
you know, working with Andy, my brother, as a, as a business partner, you know, obviously we work very closely with our dad for a long time and, and on the whole thing. And then Sean, another uh, older brother, uh, he was in Seattle for 26 years or so, or 20, I, I can't remember exactly how long. And, and he moved back to Nashville and he's working with us now as well. Nice. Um, and, and just some other, you know, some other family members ended up investing and it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely brought, you know, not just our nuclear family closer, but some of our extended family as well. And it's been, um, just a, a pretty incredible experience. So we were talking about Bell Mead and you said, that's the first thing it was kind of part of what they did and they did it with another company. And so that's the first bourbon that you created you put on the market was Bellmead bourbon wildly successful in my opinion i don't know financially what it was for you but i know when it hit the market here i was working in restaurants and everybody was everybody was drinking it did really well does really yeah well. yeah it, it's still going and um yeah yeah and and so Bellmead was meant to be a bridge to you know it was like a a proof of concept sort of because nobody would invest in the building of the distillery idea and, you know, laying down barrels in that long, slow process. So, you know, we had to prove that we could make a good product, that we could sell a product, that we could run a business, that we could be trusted. Um, and so I think that we had some success with that. Then we were able to raise some money, build out our own distillery, start laying down barrels of our Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. Um, and we we, we laid down our first barrel in 2014, um, and then we sold our first bottle October 1st of 2019, which turns out was a terrible time to launch a new brand. You don't want to launch a new brand going into the uh, last three months of the year, October, November, December. But we, we wanted... Just because like in the industry, it's known as OND, October, November, December, and it's like everybody works you know, up until that point and plans all year. And then OND, it's all about execution. And it's like, you talk to a distributor yeah, yeah. or a retailer, it's like, don't talk to me, it's OND. And then here we are, like, you know, here we are launching. And then also for like bars and restaurants, a lot of places have already put in place their fall cocktail menus and stuff. So we, we weren't really able to get much play there. And so, January, February is when we really started building up. And I was like, O and D's got to be better than than 2020, right? Yeah. So, so we worked, <laughs> we worked, we worked for 13 years to get to this point to launch our signature brand, and then, like, we're like, okay, we're we're getting it out there in at the end of 2019, but we're really going to start in earnest in 2020. We're and, a home run, baby. Just yeah, yeah. And uh, so we get all this stuff lined up. We've got like all this work going on in January and February. We've got some sponsorships lined up, all these events lined up, and we've got we're launching in Knoxville first of March, and then the world shut down. And um. But imagine that, yeah, I guess since you weren't like an established brand, you've got to do all that marketing, get your name out there. I mean, gosh, with everybody being at home, when they designated liquor stores as an essential business, you had to be like, sweet. But I mean, yeah. you gotta, I mean, did it affect you? I mean, the 
everybody being closed, man, how much do you do on-premise versus off-premise? Um, so yeah, I mean, we're a heavy on-premise leading brand. Um, okay. and, and, and the Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey eventually will become probably a little bit more off-premise than Bell Mead has just because it's a little bit lower price point and, um, that sort of thing. But, um, and I think that it, it will have just a, a broader appeal. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're probably at least 60 on 40 off premise. And, and so with a brand new brand and very little awareness about it, when, when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, with liquor stores and stuff, a lot of them were doing like curbside pickup only or online sales only. Um, and, and people were buying, they weren't shopping, you know, people have started shopping a little bit again, but like they were only buying the brands that they know and trust and have been able to do so for a long time. So, sure. I, I mean, it, it, it hit us pretty, pretty hard. Um, and we're, but things are, are picking back up again. And, um, you know, I, uh, have started um, getting back out a little bit and and going to visit some stores and and I've seen that people that give it a try tend to you know buy it like it and buy it again so that's exactly what we want and again and I'll tell you for me I you know I've been kind of joking that I think that all my bottles of Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey have holes in the bottom of the bottles because I can't keep seep to I can't seem to keep them full. Uh, I don't know if you can see some of these bottles back here, but you know they're just like uh, empty bottles. All empty bottles. <laughs> um, I've been enjoying quite a bit of them uh, during the you know the times well, so of COVID. I think that's a that's a question I would ask you. I mean, how do you manage that? I mean, gosh, I I don't I'm I'm almost a year sober myself because I yeah. couldn't. Like if I was you, I don't think I'd ever leave my house just having that <laughs> kind of access to this much and like tastings and do you have like rules that you set for yourself like hey, I'm not I've got to go to four different places today and taste bourbon. I'm not going to do this. Like being in that business, how do you manage that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I have like hard and fast rules, but I, you know, I don't really, you, you won't see me. I mean, like you won't see me like chugging or, you know, I, I just sure. try and, You're not I just doing try shots. And taste, yeah. I mean, like if, if somebody really wants to do a shot, I, I may every once in a while, but like, that's that like, you know, I, 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 I want to sip and savor it and, and, you know, enjoy the quality over the quantity. Um, but you know, the, it, it, it's something that I certainly need to be aware of so that it, it doesn't go too far because, you know, I, I have been drinking quite a bit of the, uh, of whiskey during this time and um but like you know i i'm i'm not uh not exactly uh starting um it's it's a little bit a lot i guess uh rather no, than I, um i yeah. totally understand that let me ask you this question um because and this is just a random thing i believe 
um, my own stuff, like why I don't drink is a, it's a whole different reason. It has nothing to do with you or anything that you're producing. Um, sure. It's a, it's a me thing, right? So I had an interview the other day where somebody was talking about big alcohol and how big alcohol has this responsibility. They, they're the ones that own the drink responsibly and they can do whatever. Do you guys, do you ever feel any sort of like um, responsibility or what are you, do you guys do anything towards the promotion of responsible drinking? Do you feel like that's your responsibility to, to do that? And what do you, cause I, I kind of feel like that's to the individual person, but I think that being in the industry, being an owner of a distillery, how much of that gets put back on you? And do you get like people writing you letters being like, Hey, you need to do this. You need to do that. And do you get any of that? Um, I mean, not, not a ton. Uh, we have a, a little bit, um, but I mean, I think it all comes down to like education and, and just uh, intentions and what you want to do. Like what, what we want is to educate people and we want people to, uh, you know, it's quality over quantity. Um, sure. And, and we like, we're not trying to pressure anybody into, into drinking, but like, if, if they are going to have a drink, we'd like for them to think about what they're drinking and, and um, to just be cognizant of it and be intentional and, and to learn about what they are consuming and, you know, and why are they consuming and just, just to think a little bit more about it. And I think that if you, if you are uh, more intentional and thoughtful, then naturally you'll think, okay, maybe I shouldn't have one more, uh, you know, or, or multiple more, maybe I should just like, you know, sit down and have, have one glass and, and think about it, really enjoy it and have a good conversation and talk about where it's from or, or, or get to know, you know, your friends or, or family or, or strangers for that matter, a little bit better. And we want to, you know, like I, I want to inspire people to get to know one another better and it, you're not going to get there if you're sloppy, you know? And, and, um, so, uh, I, I, we, we certainly, uh, want to encourage responsible drinking, um, and, and for people to just, just to be more thoughtful and intentional about what they're doing, the decisions they make, especially when it comes to what they're consuming. Yeah. I just, you know, it's one of those weird things that this came up the other day and I just was thinking like, as a guy with with kind of your story where this is something that every single day you know you're an entrepreneur you started a business you have this great idea with your family there's all of these things but like restaurants have the same level of responsibility like over serving people and just when you're serving a product that can make somebody make bad decisions or impair their judgment I just didn't know from Europe, like this that's another thing that comes up you're like hey I want to make it just I want to make really good whiskey but there's that whole other side to it that could be a negative connotation. I didn't know how you dealt with that or if that was something that you guys were very intentional with. Um, just kind of, hey, we want to, and like you said, education, educating people on, I think that the dangers of overindulging, you know, just, hey, when you yeah. drink too much, these things can happen. And, you know, 
continue to drink responsibly is important. Yeah, absolutely. So um, speaking of the type of stuff you have, and I don't want to get on that kind of a tangent we're just talking about, and I'm sorry, it just that went there. Um, That's all right. What, it's an important, it's with, an important topic. It is. You started with Bell Mead. You you said at 13, 14 years, you finally, in October of 2019, you released. What are you pouring now? If I went to the liquor store, let's do a little promotion. Let's do some plugs for the product that you have out there. We're almost at the hour mark. What can I go to the store today and buy? And what's your favorite? And just kind of give us the rundown of what you guys are doing right now. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what I am having, like if, if I were to have a glass tonight, I would probably uh, pour some of the Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. Um, and it is, it's the original Tennessee whiskey. It's what we started this company to produce. Or Lincoln to County processed? We are using the Lincoln County process and uh, which is, you know, filtering the whiskey through sugar maple charcoal prior to uh, aging. And uh, interestingly enough, some people back in the day apparently knew that as the Robertson County process as well, because Robertson County is where uh, Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery was and and where, you know, it was kind of like the Bardstown of its day. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's an approachable, delicious has broad appeal is priced right you know it's at like high 20s you know 29.99 roughly on the shelf low 30s so like you know for some folks it could be their go-to for others it might be a you know a special occasion zipper but um you know that's that's my consistent go-to uh right now and it, it's a weeded tennessee whiskey so i don't Ooh. know of any other weeded tennessee whiskeys on the market there may be that i just don't know about like a touch um, of sweetness to it yep it's got a little bit of sweetness it's 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 you know i hate i hesitate to use the word smooth but it is it's a smooth <laughs> it's, sweet, it's little sweet tennessee whiskey it's got a little bit of like you know caramel vanilla cinnamon cocoa just like nutmeg and it's it's great for this time of year for, you know, fall, winter. Um, okay. So I got to get into that. Do you know, do, like when, <laughs> because my brother's this guy, right? He used to make fun of me all the time because I, I did my level one sommelier in 2003 and I loved wine and I would drink wine and I would say, oh my God, check this has bits of currant and gooseberry and he go you even know what a fucking gooseberry is and i go but you but that's what it said in spectator you know and i was a, i was a i was a total nerd about it and i will i will cop to it it was a passion of mine i wanted to taste like for you getting into this thing there's a culture around bourbon i've gone up to kentucky and we've done the bourbon trail multiple times you get up there and it feels like you're in like that Napa world where people start pulling out bottles and like, look at this bottle I got. And there's some real snobbery that goes on in the bourbon whiskey world. Do you subscribe to any of that? Or are you just kind of like, a, do you, can you taste all of those different notes? Or are you just kind of like, I like it or not like it? Or where are you at? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more along the, you know, like it or don't like it. But honestly, and something that like, Charles Nelson, my triple great grandfather said is that some, you know, all whiskeys are good. Some are just better. And, and, 
you know, that's, I kind of subscribe to that. You know, um, I uh, appreciate just about all of them. And, you know, there, there are some certain notes that I can call out and some like, you know, it's usually just like one predominant note that will come out when I take a, a sip or something. Um, but like, I, you know, I think that this is something it's a, it's a product that like, whether you're drinking our whiskey or, or someone else's, it's just important to enjoy. And yeah. life's, life's too short to like, you know, be too, you know, snobby about things. Like, like I, I want people to enjoy our whiskey. However, like if, if that means drinking it neat, just sipping on it one little sip at a time or, or drinking it on the rocks, great. Or if, if it's making a cocktail, awesome. If you want to mix whatever you want, you know, whether it's a soda or Coke or, or whatever, and that's how you enjoy our whiskey, great. You know, if that's how you enjoy it, that's fine with me. As long as you're enjoying I don't want you to, like, buy our product and not enjoy it. You know, if I it think- gives you joy, like, you know, dumping it down. I, no, now that might be going a little too far, but um, well, no. See, see, that's like I talked to Kerry Bringle, and he goes, "I don't care what you do with my whiskey. I don't care if you pour it over ice. I don't care if you dump it down the drain. I don't care if you put coke in it. Whatever you got, just buy another bottle." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I, not up to me how you drink it. Just drink it. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. Just like you know, if there's a lot of different ways to consume different, you know, whether it's food or drink or, or whatever. And everybody's got their own sort of ways of doing things. And I, I, you know, I, I can help like if you want my advice or you want me to guide you. Yeah. I'm more than happy to help lead you down that path. Um, But then afterwards, if, if you prefer it another way, then fine. You know, I, I I want you to, to go with, with your preference. And, you know, I, I think that I can help you better if, if you don't enjoy it, however you're drinking, then I could probably uh, lead you to a point where you, you know, would probably enjoy it or help you (laughs) enjoy it. (laughs) I I will do my best. Okay. So we have Bellmead bourbon. Yep. Which um and then which is which is your first product? It's your 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 initial product. You have Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. Is it a is that a sour mash whiskey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't. I know that Jack Daniels is sour mash. I know so, Jeff and Jane do a sour. I don't know what a sour mash means. Yeah. Does it so, taste sour to me? No. I I can tell you, sour mash is one of the most. Uh, widely misunderstood terms in the whiskey business, in my opinion, uh, second only to what bourbon is. People think that bourbon can only be made in Kentucky when in fact it could be made anywhere in the United States. Just three Sour, years in oak, right? It, it, has, it doesn't even have to be three years. It, it just has to be made in America, made from at least 51% corn and aged in new oak barrels that are charred on the inside. If it's aged for more than two years, then you can qualify it as straight. Uh, but sour mash is a process. It's it's very similar to the process of making sourdough bread. 
It's the process of adding a little bit of back set from a previous batch into the next batch to maintain consistency from batch to batch and help maintain pH levels and that sort of thing. So it's it's not really like it's not going to give a sour taste to it, um, okay. you know, but like 99% of all American whiskeys, probably more than 99% use the sour mash process where whether they put that on their label or not. Um, however, a lot of uh, folks, you know, there are a couple brands where sour mash is a little bit more prominently displayed on the labels than others. And some people who have had maybe bad experiences with those brands and they see sour mash and they say, oh, I don't like sour mash. So then other, you know, some brands have said, you know, what? I don't even want to have this conversation. I'm just going to take sour mash off the label. Gotcha. Um, Did you so, guys do that? It's not on your label? Uh, it's it's on it's on uh, both Bellmead and Nelson's Greenbrier. Okay. Because okay. historically it was on both of those labels. Now, you have a distillery here in Nashville, yeah. correct? Yeah, it's on. Yep, in the Marathon in, Village area. It's in the Marathon Village area, which I went to a couple of raves there when I was a young kid back in the day. <laughs> uh, when I don't think we were supposed to be in there, but it was a lot of fun. So you're making this product. You distilled it yourself here in Nashville. And you for the Bell Mead, you guys do you guys distill that here in Nashville, the Bell Mead stuff? That's purchased. No, so you guys yeah, purchased we, the we stuff for that, right? Yeah, we started off sourcing where we were buying barrels that were already aging for Bellmead. Sure. And then we sort of transitioned to more contract distilling where we were saying, hey, you know, distillery that is, you know, um, bigger than us, could yeah. you make this exactly to our specs? And so that's sort of the way that Bellmead's being made now. Hey, I got I got no problem with that whatsoever. I think, I, you know. Like I said, you're that's the first thing you're doing. I think that's great. And, you're, and, the, and the, the bourbon's fantastic. So you've got the Nelson's Green Brothers. You're, you distilled it. You made it here in town. You've aged it. What else are you doing? Is that the only two you've got? You got more? Uh, I mean, we've got a, a few other fun things. Like we've got Louisa's Liqueur, which is named after my triple great-grandmother, Louisa. Um, it's a first woman to own a distillery. And so it's it's a coffee caramel pecan liqueur. Um, it's it's really good. Um, and then, uh, but we we mostly just sell that at the distillery, and um, and we've got a couple other sort of experimental things going on. You know, we've we've made it a, but but the focus is on you know um, you know Nelson's Greenbrier and and Bellmead, but the like going forward the focus uh, is going to be on Greenbrier and that will become our signature brand. It's only distributed in Tennessee, Kentucky, and South Carolina. Um, but it's, we want to take over the world with it. It was one of the largest, most it. popular brands in the world prior to prohibition. And we want to get back there. Well, I talk about on this show, supporting local and especially during these times, making sure that we are supporting the people who live here in Nashville who employ the people of Nashville and the money that you're making is, is going back into our community. And um, you're, you're the definition of what I'm talking about. If you're out there and you have a choice, when you walk into that liquor store, check them out. Green Briar Distillery, Tennessee whiskey, as well as Bellmead bourbon. It's local. The owners live here. They're making it here. 
Um, if you have friends that come to town, tell them to go check out the. Are, are you doing tours right now? Yeah, well, we're doing we're doing sort of modified tastings. Um, okay. So um, it, it's a great experience, actually. Uh, we've gotten some really good reviews on it, uh, but uh, we're not quite open during. We're not quite doing tours. Like you, you can't go on the production floor, just you know, for safety precautions. But and we are also uh, working on expanding our facility. Um, and adding like a restaurant and bar sort of thing as well. So, um, so if I'm a restaurant owner or a bar manager, or bartender, and I don't have Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, who do I need to call? Uh, Ajax Turner is Ajax Turner in in Nashville. Yep, wonderful. So call Ajax Turner and get it in there today. You guys know the Bell Mead flies off the shelf. Let's promote our local uh, distillery, uh, Charlie Nelson from Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours on end. We've just scratched service. Who knew we were going to talk about Paleolithic cave paintings? Um, <laughs> but I could, again, like all of this stuff, you're such a fascinating individual. I've kept you way too long today, but thank you for being generous with your time and figuring out the, the scheduling to get this thing done. You are amazing. I like to finish every show with, I allow the guests, I said, just open floor, open mic, whatever you might want to say to the Nashville restaurant community. Uh, no time limit, no whatever you want to say, man. Just, just floor is yours. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for, for having me on and, and for your interest in, in hearing our story and, and, you know, I've just enjoyed talking with you and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, love your brother as well. And, and he was one of the first guys that I, I, uh, met, uh, you know, that was really in the, somewhat in the business that, uh, I think really truly believed in what we were doing. And it was, it was great to get that. Uh, so, uh, thank you to, to you and, and him and your family and, and, um, and, Thanks, you know, as, as, yeah. And so as, as far as, um, you know, something I'd love to say to just the, the broader Nashville community and restaurant community and, and hospitality industry is, is like, y'all have, have like propped us up you you helped our business get off the ground we started we had nothing but an idea and we needed people to support us and the nashville community came together and supported us and helped us grow and get to where we are today and we wouldn't be where we are without the nashville community and I think that it's the greatest hospitality community in the country. And I go around to a lot of other different states and cities. And, and um, of course, there are a lot of other amazing people out there. But, you know, I, I would put Nashville's up against anybody else's in the world. The people here are incredible. The community is stronger um, and, and, you know, just better, more tight knit and like more welcome. It's a, it's a tight knit community, but like, you gotta, you gotta have respect for one another to, to be here and to thrive. And I think that everybody in this, in this community does. And, you know, you see it from like after the tornado um, and, and, you know, then of course, during the COVID times and, and how folks have come together with, you know, like the Tennessee Action for Hospitality, which 
Um, I was really proud to be a, a, a supporter of. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, I, I think that um, it's important to know that, like, while a lot of people have not been able to, to come together and, and, you know, hug one another and, and spend time together in person, I think that it, it, it that time is, is coming um and and we've been able to adapt and um you know uh get around that somewhat and and i think that uh it's really amazing just seeing others you know um growing and thriving in the community as well and we just we have so many incredible individuals and businesses um, and I think that we need to continue to to stick together um, and, you know, just keep on making it do what it do, because that's what it's all about. So um, I just I, I'm, I feel so fortunate to be a part of the national community. Um, it's it's amazing. Amen, brother. I love it. I love everything you just now said. And I, I I'm with you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, Charlie Nelson, you're a good man. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, man. All right, there it is. Charlie Nelson, founder and re-founder of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. How crazy is that? Can you imagine being in the car with your dad and brother and driving out to pick up a quarter of a cow, stopping at a gas station and seeing a sign for a distillery with your name on it? Like, oh, wow, what a cool coincidence. And then going the next mile seeing the actual distillery, doing the research and figuring out that that's your triple great-grandfather's distillery and you're going to bring it back. Wow. Just that whole process to me is just like unbelievable. So thank you all for listening today. We uh, appreciate you. If you uh, want to give some feedback, let us know what you thought about this episode. Head over to our Instagram page at Nashville underscore restaurant underscore radio and uh, let us know. We'll have a post out and uh, love to, to hear your feedback. So thank you guys once again. Hope you all are being safe out there. Love you guys. Bye.